Let's get to John chapter 8. So we talked about the story of the woman caught in adultery last week, and I hope that caused you uh, to take some time and think more critically through that story, reflect on the goodness of our God. What I'd like for you to do, though, is think about the text that we're moving in today as a continuation of the end of John chapter 7. So Jesus still is in Jerusalem. He's still there during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and it's still part of that same conversation he's having with them. So we talked about water in John chapter 7. He's going to talk about light this morning. Uh, this is the second of the famous I am statements of Jesus that we find recorded for us in John. The first was in John chapter 6. So if you remember, he said, I am the bread of life. Here he talks about, I am the light of the world. And so if we pick up in John chapter 8 and verse 12, and I'm going to read through a section of John chapter 8, and then we'll go back and talk about it. So John chapter 8, starting in verse 12, if you'd like to follow along. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness, so your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. I want us to take from this passage and really zero in on verse 12 this morning in this I am statement that Jesus makes. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what I'd like for us to do for a few minutes this morning is think more critically about the idea of light and the illustration of light as Jesus uses it here. Of course, this illustration isn't unique to Jesus. It's a timeless illustration. The idea that in this world are two forces at work, light and darkness, and they are opposed to each other. And if you want to leave darkness or be saved from darkness, then you have to seek out 
light. That's an idea that's familiar with a lot of people. But Jesus uses it here and he makes it personal. I am the light of the world. He's not talking about light in some abstract sense, but he's making himself the light. I am the light. What does that mean and what is he talking about here? What should we think about when we hear these words? A couple things. First of all, I want again to remind you that this is the same setting as we find John chapter 7. This is still in Jerusalem around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And as we talked about in John chapter 7, when Jesus talks about water, he's not just pulling that reference out of thin air, but he's using the things that are happening around him for his own illustrative purposes. And so we talked about that ceremony where the priest would pour water out in celebration of the fact that God had abundantly supplied them with the things that they need. Well, also taking place during that same time, we talked about a couple weeks ago, was this massive celebration with dancing and music and people even juggling and doing acrobatics. It was this huge celebration. In the midst of all that were these enormous golden candelabras that were lit by oil. And there's a reference to it in the Mishnah when it's talking about the way that the Jews during the second temple period, that's the time of Jesus, were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says this, And the light from the candelabra was so bright that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated from the light of the place of the drawing of the water. And so that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but the idea was that this was a big deal. This isn't just a tabletop uh, candelabra that gave a little bit of light off. This was a huge deal, and everyone in Jerusalem was focused on and thinking about that light. And so it's with that backdrop and that in mind, Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world, because people are already thinking about this. Once again, he's using his setting as a way to illustrate the truths that he wants to get people to think about. One other thing I want to point out to you is this. It's a, a quote again from the Mishnah, referencing yet again what they did during this time. And I just focus your attention on this. It says, our ancestors who were in this place. So this is something that the Jews actually spoke out loud as they were celebrating this. Our ancestors who were in this place during the first temple period, who did not conduct themselves appropriately, stood with their backs toward the sanctuary of the Lord, and their faces toward the east. Now, why would they do that? And they worshipped the sun toward the east. And we, our eyes are to God. Rabbi Yehuda said that they would repeat and say, we are to God and our eyes are to God. So one of the things they did during the drawing of the water ceremony during the festival of the tabernacles is they would repeat this. They wanted God to know we recognize the sins of our ancestors, and we are separating ourselves from them. So unlike that time when our ancestors stood with their backs to the temple, the presence of God, and their faces towards the sun and worshiped the sun, we want you to know, God, that we are here with our backs to the sun facing you in the temple. Our eyes are focused on you. In other words, it's a bold statement that you are the only light that we recognize. Now, what are they referencing here when they talk about this time when their ancestors worshipped the sun? That's not usually something we think about when we think about the Israelites. We know they were associated with idol worship at times in their history, but what about worshipping the sun? And it's a quote from Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 16. In that chapter, Ezekiel has this vision where there's this little hole in the wall into the temple 
courtyard and he's asked to make that hole bigger and then he enters into the hole and and he's taken into the temple to see abominations that are being done by God's people in the temple and he's shown one abomination after another and kind of the culmination like how bad can this really get is what's described here in verse 16 it says he then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord and there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men that position is important because that's where the priests would have stood as intercessors between God's people in God himself. And here are 25 men standing in that position, but this is what they're doing. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. So God is saying, you want to know how corrupt my people can become? That even in the place of the priests, they're standing with their backs to me and their faces towards the sun. They're not worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping the sun in the east. And this was absolutely a form of idol worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 19, God gives the Israelites this instruction. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. This is in the context of his teaching on idol worship. There is this innate desire in humanity for some reason to take those things we can't see and turn them into things we can And so the God that we worship that we can't lay eyes on, we got to see him somehow. we got to be able to touch him and feel him and know what he looks like. And so what did ancient people do? They carved images. Isaiah turns this into kind of a, a, a farcical setting where he says a man plants a tree and he watches the tree grow and then he cuts down the tree. And half of the tree he turns into firewood and he cooks his dinner and he says, ha, fire. And the other half he carves it into an image. And he bows down and he worships it. And it's a ridiculous way to think about idol worship, but that's the whole point for the Israelites, is that idol worship is ridiculous. There is no need to take a God that we can't see and turn him into something we can, especially when our fascination with what's around us, more often than not, we turn God into not the creator, but the creation. And so we carve him in the likeness of an animal. Or they're tempted to look at the sky, what they see, and they turn the heavenly host into deities and the The sun is now a representation of our God. And so we no longer worship God who created us. We worship the sun that we can see in heaven. And by the way, a fascinating thing to think about in Scripture, we don't need an image of God because God already made images of himself. You know who they are? It's us. He created us as image bearers of him. So idol worship is ridiculous in every sense, but there's this warning against it in the scriptures. Don't fall prey to idol worship like the people around you. But yet we know Israel did, going so far as to worship the sun itself. And just so you know, this isn't just a hypothetical, this is how bad it could become. This is what Israel did in their history. If you read 2 Kings chapter 23, this is during the reforms of young King Josiah when they uncover a copy of scriptures while they're remodeling part of the temple and it brings about this great reformation. We need to do what we read about in this book. And it says this in 2 Kings 23 and 11, he removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. This isn't a hypothetical. Israel had in their history worshipped the sun and had even 
at the entrance of the temple itself, dedicated idols to that sun god. And so with all that in mind, during the very time Jesus is making this statement, the Israelites are gathered together to declare to God, we are not like our ancestors. The only light we recognize is your light, God. And so we're not going to turn our faces towards the sun. We're going to turn our faces towards you. So with all that as a background, with the candle opera giving light to all of Jerusalem, and with their recognition that the only light they worship comes from God and God alone, Jesus stands up and he makes this statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now I want us to think about light, and I want to think about it in, in two different ways. Okay, Number one as The idea of a journey into light, out of darkness and into light. Jesus talks about it by saying this, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. You are in darkness, I'm calling you out of darkness and into my light. So if you're going to escape darkness, then you have to know where that point of light is as a reference. Where is light? How do I escape out of darkness and into light? So let's think about the journey out of darkness and into light. First of all, think about John chapter 1 and how this is language that John already introduced to, uh, uh, to us in the prologue to his gospel. He already wants us to think about the contrast between darkness and light. And so this is what he says as he's first introducing Jesus to us in the gospel of John. Start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It cannot be snuffed out by darkness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through, and through the world, the, sorry, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This idea is driven home here in what we see unfolding in John chapter 8, that the light came to his own, but his own did what? Did not receive him. And that's what we see here is these group of Israelites to whom God sent his very light, the very people who are declaring to God in this setting, the only light we recognize is you, don't see God when he's standing in front of them. They don't recognize the light of God. Even though God sent the light into the world, And even though it was sent to his own, his own did not recognize him. And we see that kind of come to a head in John chapter 8, and we're going to talk about that more over the next coming weeks. But this is an idea introduced to us in the very beginning of John's gospel. Later on in John chapter 3, we talked about verses 16 through 18 over the last couple weeks. For God sent his only son. We talked about that appeal to salvation. That God sent his son not to condemn the world, but to do what? Save the world. But this is what we read if we continue on in verse 19. This is the verdict. John's like, so why are we talking about this? This is how we summarize it. Light has come into the world, but people loved, pay attention, people loved what? Darkness 
instead of light. Why? Why would anyone choose darkness over light? Well, here's the reason. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Why? They will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I don't want to be in the light. I'm not seeking out light because I revel in my evil and I don't want my evil to be shown for what it is. Man, there's so much to ponder and think about in this statement alone when it comes to our frustrations with the world continually trapped in darkness. For fear that their deeds will be exposed, they avoid the light. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And here is this hard truth revealed to us in this passage. And it's worth thinking about. Some people are drawn to the light. Some people are repelled by it. Why is it in Jesus' ministry that some people are so attracted to the man Jesus Christ and others can't seem to come to terms with who he is? Why is it that there's some who would do anything just to approach him and some who will stop at nothing to put him to death? Why is it that we still live in a world where there are those like you gathered here today who will happily listen to a preacher drone on for the chance to learn more about the Christ and there are those who want nothing to do with him. We're going to talk about that more next week. But this passage in John chapter 3 helps explain that. And this is the hard truth. That there are some who are attracted to light and others who are repelled by it. Why? Because if you live in such a way that you never want your evil deeds exposed for what they are, then you will do anything to avoid light. In Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul has an opportunity to give a witness in front of uh, one of the kings. And as he's recounting his conversion story, he describes it this way. So these are the words of Paul, but the words of Paul sharing the words of Jesus, as Jesus first shared them to Paul. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus said to Paul, according to Paul. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what God was going to do through the Apostle Paul's preaching, this appeal to people come out of darkness and into light. But there are people who are looking for that escape. They are looking for light. And when they find it, they are attracted to it. And there's those who once they see it, they're going to hide from it. But this is what God sent Paul to do, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Sometimes we get so trapped in darkness that we don't recognize the need for light anymore. And that's the condition a lot of people found themselves in. So the first thing I want you to think about is this idea of journeying out of darkness and into light. This call Jesus offers us, I am the light of of the world, if you're looking for light, that's an exciting prospect. If you're not, you've already dismissed him. Are you seeking out light this morning? Are you looking for that source of light that can lead you into something better? But the second thing is that he doesn't just call us towards him, he calls us into something. Out of darkness and into light. That light is now a place that we reside. When we live in darkness, light is this beam in the distance that we're trying to find so that we know how to escape. But once we've escaped it, darkness is no longer what surrounds us. We now live in light. Light characterizes our existence. 
In chapter 8 and verse 12, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. That's the call out of darkness and into light. But listen to what he says next. But will have the light of life. Have the light of life. It becomes this thing now that you are in possession of. You're no longer surrounded by darkness. You are walking in light. And darkness cannot swallow up the light that Jesus offers us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, you're probably familiar with this from the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. Now, this is interesting because in John chapter 8, what, is, what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Now, here in Matthew, he says, you are the light of the world. How can that be? Because once we have grabbed hold of that light, once we have been transferred from darkness and into light, once we are now walking in the light, we're going to talk about all this language as we go through these passages, we become the light of the world. But what is that source of light? It's not us. It's Jesus. This is really all just a stand-in for the idea that we have fellowship, continual fellowship with both the Father and the Son. And when we are in fellowship with the Father and the Son, we're no longer in darkness. We are in light. And we become reflections of that light. And so you are the light of the world. Not because of our own goodness, because of the goodness of the Savior that's reflected from within us. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, what do they do? They put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, and here's the key to this whole thing, so that they may see your good deeds and tell you how awesome you are. No, because it's not our light, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Light is what characterizes our lives. Listen, if you belong to Christ this morning, you are not trapped in darkness any longer. You are walking in light. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. This is John again in the beginning of his first epistle. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sins. This state of fellowship with the Father and the Son. We are called out of darkness and into light. It's exactly how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who did what? How would you describe if you are going to praise God to people in the world who have no relationship with God and you're going to succinctly describe to them what it is God has done for you? The most common language we employ today is one of salvation, right? God has saved me. Let me talk to you about how God saved me. And that's very good and that's very true, but Peter employs a different vocabulary here. It's not a vocabulary of salvation. Listen to what he says. You may declare the praises of him who did what? What has he done for us? Who called you out of darkness and into what? Marvelous light. Is that how you would describe your walk with God? A walk in marvelous light. 
Do you still feel the weight of darkness? Do you feel like you're trapped in darkness, even as a child of God this morning? If so, it's time to change our perspective. You are called into a marvelous light, an escape from darkness. Yes, he's calling you to follow him out of darkness, but once you've found that light, remain in it. Remain in him. This is all about fellowship with the Father and the Son. A couple weeks ago, we tied all of this into Revelation and the scene of the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. I want to do the same thing again, and I want to share with you two passages, again from Revelation 21 and 22, describing that scene in the New Jerusalem. First of all, Revelation 21, verses 23 through 24, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Well, why? For the glory of God gives its light. This is what the Israelites are, tr are trying to express in the Feast of Tabernacles. When they're saying, our eyes are only towards you, God, that we don't need the sun because we've got the light of our Creator. And this is what he's describing when all things are made new. There's no longer a need for the sun or moon to shine on that city for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gate ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Why aren't the gates shut? Because there's no night. What does that mean? It means night is a representation of a threat of darkness. What happens at night? Intruders break in at night. You've got to shut the city gates at night to protect the world from what happens in the veil of darkness. And he's saying there's no threat anymore. You don't have to shut the gate because nothing is going to happen in the darkness because there's no darkness anymore. The reason there's no darkness is because the singular source of light is God the Father and the Lamb. That's what awaits us. But for those of us who already walk in the light of Christ today, we're living out that reality now. This is why we're a light into the world. We are beacons of hope that this is our reality. Yes, you step outside and you look at the world around you and darkness seems overwhelming, but you are not trapped in that darkness. You are walking in light. I hope you recognize that reality. Verse 22 of Revelation. No longer will there be any curse. What curse is he referring to? The original curse. The curse that took place in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. It's done away with. Eden is made new. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Listen, this whole conversation, Jesus is telling a group of people who are boldly proclaiming to their Creator, we recognize the only light we need is you. Jesus is standing up and saying, I am that light. And yet, here's a group of people saying they want that more than anything and unwilling to recognize it when they see it. That's a heartbreaking reality. And so as you go through the rest of this text, everything we read, there's not time to get into it this morning, but two questions I want you to think about that they ask. Number one is this, they asked him, where is your father? Jesus is continually talking about where he's from and the fact that he's doing the will of the Father. They can't come to terms with who Jesus is because they don't recognize the Father. And it's all intertwined. 
If you knew the Father, you would know me, he says. You can't know me because you don't know my Father. If you recognize me, you recognize my Father. You don't know where I came from because you don't know where the Father is from. And this is why they're bewildered by his talk about where I'm going, you cannot come. They don't understand it because they don't know where he came from to begin with. So how can it be that a people who are seeking the light of God can't recognize it when they see it? And then the second question they ask is just this, who are you? They asked. And you remember his response? What I've been telling you from the beginning. How else can I phrase it? The reality is, even amongst those who think they desire light, light is appealing to some and repulsive to others. Why are you here this morning? Because you recognize, like those Israelites, that you need light in your life. Where do we find that light? I can remember, I don't remember what year it is, several years ago, it was before Paisley was born, Robin's employer gifted us with a, um, a trip to Cancun. We'd never been before. It was awesome. And on one of the days we went to this place called Ishkaret. I don't, some of you who have been there might know what it is. It's like um, a cross between, I don't know, SeaWorld and a circus, and there's like no regulations, so it's really, really cool. And uh, there's this underground river that you can float through, and it's an amazing experience. So they give you life jackets, and you go in, it's, it's light. There's these, you know, cenotes that give natural light. But then as you travel from one of those openings to the next, it's, it's dark. And for most of the way, they've got artificial light, so you can at least see what's going on. But about halfway through the journey, there's this enormous cavern that you enter into, and they purposely don't have any lights in there. And so by the time you get to the middle of the cavern, you have lost all points of reference. And it's one of the most bewildering experiences I've ever had. You know, you're telling yourself, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, everything's okay, right? And then you're imagining things bumping into your legs because you can't see. I mean, it's the darkest I've ever witnessed, and there is no point of reference. So you're just kind of laying there, calming yourself, thinking, okay, there's a current, eventually I'll escape from this. And then after what seems like an eternity, there's a light, and it's the opposite end of the cavern. And I'm telling you, in that moment, when you are truly overwhelmed by darkness, the greatest thing in the whole world is that little shimmer of light on the horizon. Because you know what? There's hope. If I can just get to that light and escape this darkness, there's hope. This question, who are you? Jesus answers it here, I am the light of the world. But there's another place that that question is answered, and it all ties in, and I'm so grateful David led the songs he did about the name of Jesus, because this is right in line with that. Will you turn to Isaiah chapter 8 with me? We're going to end the lesson here. Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 19, and I'm going to read through chapter 9 and verse 7. After we read this, I invite you to stand and sing. And it's a simple invitation this morning. It's an invitation to leave darkness behind and to walk in light. If you have not yet recognized Jesus as the light of the world, and if you have not yet listened to his appeal to escape darkness and find yourself walking in light, perpetually in fellowship with him and his Father, won't you take advantage of that invitation this morning? This is what Isaiah has to tell us. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, a world that is turned away from God looking for any avenue they can to find answers, sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
Should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward were cursed their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. And I'm afraid that describes the plight of this world apart from the light of our God and our Savior. Just this overwhelming feeling of being trapped in darkness forever. But this passage doesn't leave us without hope. Chapter 9, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Nebulun and the, Nam, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel, and the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride, the arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down. We will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have felled. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened resin's foam against them and spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. There's this idea of God, this fear that God will remain angry forever. And what he has in mind for Israel will just leave them in a land of darkness forever. But this picture of God with hand upraised forever, picture an angry you know, parent with the rod of discipline in their hand, that that's just the state that they're in forever. We're not children cowering in fear of an angry God. We are people of hope who recognize that a light has dawned. And that God's promises have been fulfilled. And that we survey God, who is offering us a way out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And his name is Jesus. And with that, the lesson is yours. Will you stand and sing? I love you, Lord.